2: My name is Rachel Gresler, and I am a research fellow here at the Heritage Foundation focusing on budget, economics, and entitlements. Um, I'm delighted to welcome you here today for our presentation on the rich states, poor states, um, American Legislative Exchange Council, State Economic Competitive Index. So one of the great benefits of having 50 different states across the US is that they serve as laboratories of democracy pursuing different policies and testing what works and what doesn't. And as this report shows, states do pursue very different policies with stark results. So New York, for example, has one of the highest state and local tax rates. Um, Combined for individuals, the top rate is 12.7%, and for corporations, it's 17.2%. And over the period between 2005 and 2016, New York had 1.9 million more people leave the state than it had come into the state. Contrast that with Florida, which has no income tax for individuals and a top rate combined rate of 5.5% for corporations. Florida had 1.1 million more people come into the state than left the state over that same period. But it's not only taxes that contribute to whether a state is flourishing or stagnating. The Rich States, Poor States report looks at 15 other factors as well, including labor laws, regulatory burdens, debt, and unfunded pension obligations. And those are the things that help determine what policies will help the states thrive and what state policies will hurt opportunity and growth. That's why this book serves as such a helpful um, source for policymakers. As Senator Tim Scott from South Carolina said, Publications such as Rich States, Poor States serve as valuable tools to provide policymakers with a blueprint for job creation and economic success. So that is why I'm delighted today to have these panelists here with us to discuss what they have found um, across the states and what is helping states grow and what is hurting them. Um, First up here, we have Steve Moore. Steve is um, a founding author of the Rich States Four States Competitive Index, and that's just one of his many accomplishments. Steve is now on his second tour of duty with the Heritage Foundation. Um, During his two breaks there, he um, he has done things including serving in the Reagan administration, working for Congress's Joint Economic Committee. He founded the Club for Growth as well as the Free Enterprise Fund, and he also served as an economics writer for the Wall Street Journal. Currently at Heritage, he is the Visiting Fellow in the Project for Economic Growth and Opportunity. Next is Jonathan Williams. Um, Not only is Jonathan the lead author of our Rich States, Four States report that we're looking at today, but I'm willing to bet he also has more frequent flyer miles than anybody in the room. Um, Jonathan regularly travels over 100,000 miles per year as he travels across the country to work with state policymakers, congressional leaders, and members of the private sector to develop fiscal policy solutions for the states. Jonathan does this in his role as the chief economist and vice president for the Center for State Fiscal Reform at the American Legislative Exchange Council, also known as ALEC. Prior to joining ALEC, Jonathan worked at the Tax Foundation. And Adam Michelle is also a Tax Foundation alum. Um, He's better known, however, as Heritage's Tax Guru or more formally, a senior policy analyst in the Grover M. Herman Center for the Federal Budget at Heritage. Adam's work focuses on how taxes impact opportunities and the well-being of Americans. Before coming to Heritage, Adam worked for the Spending and Budget Initiative at the Mercatus Center. And Adam is also currently pursuing his Ph.D. at George Mason University. We're going to structure this today as kind of a question and answer um, panel as opposed to having prepared remarks. So I'm going to sit down here and join our panelists um, and just lead a discussion here. All right, so to start things off, I wanted to just look at the top line numbers in the reports. We have a ranking here, 1 through 50. Um, Jonathan, can you tell us which states were the big winners and which were the big losers?
3: Well, thank you, Rachel, and and thanks to our friends here at the Heritage Foundation, who's great uh, partners in our fight for free markets, limited government, and federalism. And, of course, we focus at the state level, which has been so great to work on this report with my co-author here, Steve Moore. Uh, And this has been an exciting 11 years. It's hard to believe we've been putting this together 11 years now, Steve. But we've seen so many changes at the state level. Uh, Just in the last several years, uh, that would be very interesting to document. And our ranking system, as Rachel pointed out, uh, does assign a numeric value for every state based on 15 equally weighted factors. Uh, We chose those factors for a couple of reasons. Uh, Art Laffer, who's been keeping this data set uh, more or less the same for 50 years, uh, chose the factors because they're things that matter, we know, based on the evidence for economic growth and competitiveness. But perhaps just as importantly, as we see all these indices uh, really out there today, is The factors that we measure in rich states, poor states are directly controlled by state legislators. There's so many of these out there that are things like weather and quality of life and things that legislators would love to be able to legislate but cannot. Uh, And so the factors that you'll see in rich states, poor states with how we measure the states is how we uh, will go over the ranking here. Uh, Those are things that legislators in the 50 state capitals directly control. And so for the 11th year in a row, uh, the honor of the top state in terms of economic outlook goes to our friends in Utah, a state that has kept things very competitive, that has grown tremendously in terms of their economy. The new population numbers that just came out, which we'll be talking about later, prove that fact As Utah is one of the fastest-growing states as people continue to vote with their feet toward states with low taxes and competitive environments. But as people often ask, you know, why is Utah, what's the staying power that Utah has had now for 11 years at the top in, in terms of best economic outlook? Really, I point to a few things. And that, first of all, is they have a, a single-rate flat tax that they adopted about 10 years ago under Governor John Huntsman before he actually went to serve in the Obama administration. Uh, so it came together and, and, and made a flat tax, reduced their top rate. They were a state, and this is really, I think, an essential issue for states in that they reformed their pension system, the massive unfunded liabilities that we detail annually at ALEC that threaten both spending and taxes at the state level. Utah got ahead of the curve and actually moved towards more of a defined contribution private sector model uh, six or seven years ago under our good friend Dan Lillianquist, and that has seen massive savings for the taxpayers of Utah. And then finally for Utah, they've adopted, I think, a very innovative approach to keeping property taxes limited. Who here thinks their property taxes are too high, right? Pretty much every hand usually goes up in the audience when I ask that question. Utah has gotten to the heart of the issue, which is stopping the stealth property tax increases through the assessment process, so assessment-driven property tax increases. When local officials will say to you directly in the face that we just cut your property tax rate, but you look at your bill and your bill actually went up, that's something through Utah's truth in taxation law that they were able to put a stop to. So lots of great free market policy stories from the top state in the index. The rest of the top five that we can talk about perhaps as we go, Idaho, a state that benefited dramatically from federal tax reform and cutting rates as it relates to the changes in the federal code. Indiana, North Dakota, and Arizona in the top five. The states uh, that have a lot of work uh, still to be done when it comes to their outlook being at the last. Uh, New York's been 50th out of 50 for nearly every edition of rich states, poor states. Uh, Bernie Sanders, Vermont comes in at uh, 49. Steve's home state of Illinois at 48. California and New Jersey round out the bottom five.
2: Thanks Jonathan. You noted that both Utah's remained at the top and New York at the bottom. Have there been any big winners, big gainers or ones that have dropped a lot?
3: There's a there's quite a few notable stories there when it comes to the states that have won and lost the most over now 11 years and it's important to mention We've kept a consistent time series. We've gone to great lengths to do that. So we have comparable data. Uh, variables have not changed. We've been able to keep that. So we were able to reliably say the variables that were there in 2007 and 2008 when it kicked off the report are the same variables that we look at today. But a couple of the states that really uh, stick out um, in terms of positive movement, and that is North Carolina and Indiana. Uh, North Carolina and Indiana were both in the mid-20s just five or six years ago when it comes to their economic outlook rankings, and now you find them both in the top ten. Indiana's taken a little bit more of an incremental approach, starting with Mitch Daniels and Mike Pence as governors and now Governor Holcomb. Uh, But they've continued to chip down barriers to entry in terms of businesses and individuals coming into Indiana. Now one of the big ones that made you know lots of waves uh, politically at least was right to work, where Indiana really set off the the domino effect across the midwest that we've seen many states now become right to work states is a yes or no option to become more competitive for their economies. My home state of Michigan followed along, but I think it's very safe to say that. If Indiana hadn't led the way on right to work, Michigan and and many of the other states in the Midwest may not be right to work today. But they've also kept spending in uh, check. They've cut rates down. Uh, North Carolina was a little bit more dramatic, where four or five years ago, The legislature came, and it was a a different, really, philosophy of the legislature, where uh, liberals had run uh, uh, North Carolina's uh, tax code for nearly 100 years, and conservatives came into power with then-Speaker Tom Tillis, now U.S. Senator Tom Tillis, and and others to say, we need to remake the tax code in North Carolina, and they dramatically went from the mid-20s to the top five or the top 10 in our index by killing the death tax. That was one of the things that they did, which came in and said, this is an economic killer in terms of development for our state. They did that. They cut rates. They became a flat tax state. They took all previous progressive brackets that they had in the tax code, put them to one single rate flat tax. And that single rate flat tax today is lower than any of the previous brackets in their graduated system. And, by the way, I'll end with this and why North Carolina is so impressive, is when I go around the country and I ask people to talk about their corporate tax system and, and we counsel them on what, what is best practice, I ask them, what is North Carolina's corporate income tax rate today? And they'll say four maybe five percent, or they must be really competitive. Now, I say it's actually just phased down to two and a half percent. That is the cost of doing business in North Carolina is 2.5% corporate income tax rate. When you compare it against rates like New York and some of the others that we mentioned at the bottom hand of this list, it's no surprise that not only just businesses and people are voting with their fees, voting with their pocketbook, going to states like North Carolina to become more competitive and more profitable.
2: Thank you. I would like to talk some more now on the, the tax issue. I think that's what hits home The most with people is you look at what are the average state and local tax burdens. Well, according to the Tax Foundation, um, New York has an average per capita state and local tax burden of $7,000. Utah is $3,500. So that's number 50, number one here. You multiply that by four for a family of four, and you're looking at $28,000 in New York versus $14,000 in Utah. That's a big difference. Mm -hmm. Um, so Steve um, and Jonathan as well have both written articles recently looking at how people are flocking to lower tax, tax states, leaving the higher tax ones. Can you first talk on that a little bit, Steve?
1: Sure. Um, thank you for Heritage for putting this on. And by the way, I want to um, do a shout out to my friend Courtney. Thank you for funding this uh, now for 10 straight years at the Searle Foundation, so we couldn't do it without their financial support. Um, so look, this is the big this is the big story in America that nobody's talking about, which is that blue states are getting killed, getting crushed by red states. And it's a big source of embarrassment to liberals because they don't have a very good explanation for this. Um, and, and it's basically a migration that uh, I think Richard Vetter first pointed this out many years ago, but it continues to be true, even at an accelerated pace, that every single day in America, 1,000 people are leaving the high-tax states and they're moving to the low-tax states on net. And this is and a migration of about 4 to 5 million people every year that are moving to states that have more economic freedom. It's a big deal. Um, States like New York, New Jersey. I just wrote a column called The Four States of the Apocalypse, and I think you can probably all guess what's four states... Anybody want to guess what those four are? New York, Connecticut, Illinois and New Jersey. Uh, I guess I, California may be number five. I mean, California has Silicon Valley and other assets that those other states don't have, but it's a huge problem for them. I mean, literally, it's going to be will the last resident of New Jersey please turn out the lights. I mean, that's how dire it's gotten in some of these states. You're right, Jonathan. I'm from Illinois. Illinois is a, is a catastrophe today. It's it's sad to see the you know the land of Lincoln, the the state that I grew up in. It was a very prosperous state. By the way, all four of those states, thirty, forty, fifty years ago, were the most prosperous states in the country, mm-hmm. and now they are just um, being bled to death. And even even Cuomo, um, uh, uh, Andy Cuomo, the governor of, of New York, is saying like our taxes are way way too high. It's it's killing us, and it's um, you know it's businesses, it's high income people. I have a good friend who lives. Um, who lived grew his business in um, in Orange County, California, um, became one of the top financial gurus in the country is a billionaire has probably one of the five greatest houses in America, uh, Laguna Beach. I mean, incredible property. His family lives in California. He called me three months ago. I said, it's it's all too much now. I'm moving to Miami, Florida. And that kind of thing is just happening over and over again. And it's a huge, huge problem for these states. I mean, basically, California, New York, New Jersey, Illinois um, have to either change or they will die. They will die. And the finan- it's, it's interesting that all four of those states continue to raise taxes. Illinois, you might have just read in the Wall Street Journal the other day that now they're talking about getting rid of their the – one, the one thing that was right about Illinois, the one saving grace of Illinois was that they had a low – a constitutional low flat rate income tax. And now they want to blow that up and, and have a massive tax increase on the rich. There are I mean, I'm from Illinois, folks. You know how bad it is in Illinois today? Illinois last year lost population to West Virginia. That's how bad it is. So you know um, so it's a it's a catastrophe. Um, I pray that these states will change. I'll make one other quick point and then turn it over to Adam because I know he has a lot of done a lot of research on this too. Um, that um, we changed the state and local tax deduction in the in the federal tax law. This is something I fought like hell for. I thought it was one of the most important changes we made in the tax code. Um, I believe in federalism. I believe states should be, you know, I'm a big states rights guy. I believe states should be able to do what they want, but there has never been any rationale for why people in Texas and Florida and New Hampshire should have to pay higher taxes to fund big government services in states like Illinois and New York and New Jersey. I mean, there's just, it's not, it's not fair for the low tax states to pay higher federal taxes to subsidize the, the, uh, the high tax states that doesn't go on anymore. That's effectively raised the highest income tax rate in states like California, New York, New Jersey, and Illinois by forty percent. So, by the way, rich people living in California, New York, uh, you know those those five states, they didn't get a tax cut. <laughs> I have a lot of friends who said you raised my taxes because and I said, look, if you want to live in New York, you know that's your prerogative, but we shouldn't have to pay for it. So that's going to put increasing pressure on these states to reform their tax system, which they ought to do. I mean, you mentioned the fact that the, um, the tax burden is, what did you say, one-half as large in mm-hmm. Utah as New York. Well, you know, think about that in terms of, um, you know, what that means for a family in terms of and, – and, and by the way, here's the most interesting thing about that. New York spends twice as much per capita as Utah does, and yet by every objective measure – Public services are better in Utah than they are in, in New York. It would be one thing if New York were buying you know, great schools and great roads, and, and they don't. They don't. They have high crime. They have terrible schools and so on. So um, this is an important message. These states have to change their taxes. And one last thing. There's just something about the Mormons. I mean, they just get it right. I mean, think about it. The three of the five, five states are the three states that have the highest Mormon population, Utah, Idaho, and Arizona. So I, I don't know. I think it's kind of an interesting thing. <laughs>
2: Jonathan, can you add a little there on just the net migration flow figures and also what this means, not just for people leaving the state, but their representation in Congress?
3: Yeah, I thought you were going to ask me to comment on religion. I'll I'll avoid (laughs) that uh, for a second, and I'll go to the political uh, ramifications of all this in that we spend a lot of time talking about the economics, and rightly so, in our report once a, every 10 years or so, people in this town pay attention to what's going on in the states, and that's when state legislators redraw their lines when it comes to the US House. And when we look at these population flows, they have obviously a very direct relationship with how states are winning or losing in terms of political representation in the US House. And when you look at uh, both what happened in 2010 and what is likely to happen in the census of 2020 and in, in the reapportionment and redistricting that will follow 2020, it tells a very stark political story as well in terms of the states that are getting it right economically are reaping those benefits. We know that. We've talked about that to some degree. But they're, always gonna, they're also going to represent and, uh, and enjoy the political benefits of the in-migration and in that the biggest winners from 2020 are likely to be Texas and Florida, two states that always do very well in rich states, poor states. By the way, two states of the nine that do not tax personal wage income, an important component to a state's economic competitiveness. And Texas will likely gain two to three new U.S. House seats in 2020. And that's, uh, that's a, just a huge benefit to getting it right when it comes to the economics of it. Florida will probably gain two. Uh, You look at some of the other states on the other side of the equation, the biggest losers likely for 2020 will be Illinois and uh, New York. We'll probably both lose one to two seats at least. Uh, Where you have some other interesting stories here is Rhode Island, a state that has not done a lot right when it comes to policy uh, lately, is going to, for the first time in state history since the founding of our republic, will go down to a single-member U.S. House district from two to one. Uh, And also an interesting takeaway Uh, is California. People always ask, well, what about California? We don't see it on the plus or the minus side. And that gets into a little bit of an interesting discussion when it comes to population versus net domestic migration, because California generally stays afloat because of international immigration and birth rates over death rates. Now, when we look at what 2020 plans uh, when it comes to the numbers, is California may actually lose a congressional seat despite international immigration and birth rates being strong because of the vast net domestic migration of people voting with their feet to the other 49 states, those businesses and others that are continually bound from California. That would be a remarkable trend for every single census from the basically statehood for California in 1850 up until 2010, California gained U.S. House seats, and sometimes dramatically so. 2010 was a marker in the history of California. It was the first time they did not gain a U.S. House seat, and 2020 may be the first time they lose a a U.S. House seat because of this net domestic migration effect. Uh, So a piece that I recently had in the Hill that was on Drudge talks through comprehensively how states are going to win and lose in 2020 likely based on it and kind of brings it back to the economics of the issue. We cannot separate the economic benefits and then what D.C. will see on the political side.
2: Yeah, and Adam, you've looked a lot at corporations, and people can't leave the states if they don't have somewhere to go that's offering them a job. Can you talk about what's happening there? And in, in particular, we saw Amazon decide to pull its second headquarters from New York City, who, you know, in a state that's number 50 here, and yet it kept its other headquarters in Virginia, ranking number 10.
4: Yeah, thank you, Rachel. The So, at the federal level, we lowered the corporate tax rate as part of this last tax reform. And so internationally, that should have the impact of businesses no longer flooding out of the United States like what was happening before the reform. But instead, we're seeing businesses and business investment flow back into the United States. The exact same thing happens at the at the state and local level. Uh, North Carolina is a, is a great example, lowering the corporate tax rate, sort of stepping it down over time. They've seen tremendous business investment in the state um, to the extent where they haven't seen... Dramatic reductions in the amount of actual revenue they're getting simply because they have so many more businesses that keep moving into the into the state. And the hope there is they can eventually eliminate the corporate tax because uh, because the economy is so strong. Uh, they 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 know that this is such an important factor for businesses choosing what state to live in, the uh, to to headquarter in. They uh, eliminating the tax has been an something that has been driving legislators in in the state that that I've heard from uh, I think Amazon is a is an interesting issue on the flip side of that so lowering tax rates across the board benefits everyone giving spe, uh, special handouts or specific tax breaks to this business or that business is is competition in the sort of in the bad way that it it ultimately falls to just large, powerful corporations that have the lobbyists to go knock on the doors and ask for these favors, like we saw uh, with Amazon, instead of the little guy being able to access those exact same benefits. I think the the New York story is particularly interesting because it shows that when businesses wrap themselves with government for these special handouts it it moves them from the sort of free market private sector into this quasi government controlled uh, position where they're now at the whims of partisan groups that may have a different agenda other than creating jobs and and making products at lower prices and and so and we saw this in New York that it ultimately wasn't a good uh, economic decision for Amazon to even take these large benefits simply because of the, the sort of how attached they become to the local governments, uh, so I think it's a it's a cautionary tale and i and hopefully it turns the tide away from uh, New York's having high tax rates for everyone, but then giving preferences to specific businesses to the North Carolina uh, example of low tax rates for everyone
2: yeah, and I think that's a good point is that corporations want to know the rules ahead of the game and would rather have a level playing field than to take, um, you know, be having to cozy up to politicians and not know whether or not those special breaks that you've negotiated for however many years are going to be around after the next election. Um, So that's a good point to make on the corporations there. I want to talk about the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act because this is the first year, you know, following the first year that the states had some big changes, both in terms of their total revenue coming in but also how that impacted them through the SALT deduction. So the state and local tax deduction, it used to be the case that individuals could deduct all the state and local taxes that they paid on their federal returns. Um, Now they are capped at $10,000. And ironically, those who are opposing this cap are the ones from the blue Mm -hmm. states that want to tax the rich, but not their rich. Um, the, The SALT deduction is really both a matter of Economic policy and also fairness. Um, So we have the case prior to the salt limit that you had people in New York, um, on average, the millionaires in New York pay $500,000 in state and local taxes, um, compared to millionaires in Texas paid about $70,000 in state and local taxes. That means that all taxpayers across the U.S., all federal taxpayers, are giving the New York millionaires roughly a $200,000 break on their federal taxes, and they're giving the Texas millionaires roughly a $28,000 break on their federal taxes. That was not fair, and that's not productive. Um, so, Adam, there's a lot going on there with the SALT deduction, and I wanted to have ask you about the impact that it's having both on the state revenues um, and also the policies that they're enacting.
4: You think you laid out uh, sort of nicely the case for eliminating the SALT deduction. We used to have uh, this full subsidy that was making folks in, in Tennessee and Texas in, uh, in low-tax states subsidize high tax rates in California, in New York. Um, I think the difference between that the taxpayer that you just mentioned in New York versus Texas, the difference in their tax liability simply because of the state, that they their, the difference in their federal tax liability simply because of the state they were in was $180,000 a year. Um, simply because of so this, that's the cross subsidization from Texas to New York, uh, and in, in California, the highest uh, mar- top marginal income tax rate in the country, forty percent of that was previously subsidized by taxpayers around the country. So, uh, capping the salt deduction at ten thousand uh, dollars makes this uh, creates the incredible opportunity for states to reform their tax systems and realize the the, the detrimental impact of the su- that the subsidy was having on states around the country, both the states that were subsidizing high rates in other states, but then the sort of the papering over effect in the New Yorks and Californias that allowed them to have tax rates that were so incredibly high. The I think uh, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, uh, called the salt cap crass, ugly, divisive, and partisan legislating. And it, I think it's simply none of those things. We we did some analysis here at Heritage. We looked at every congressional district around the country, and and Democrats tend to uh, represent congressional districts that are impacted both the most by the salt cap and the least by the salt cap. They represent high income districts and low income districts, and so it it really sort of hits the, the the political spectrum across the board, and and is simply just a a change for to get rid of the subsidy that that previously existed the, the 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 politics of it i think are are really important uh, we've been talking a lot about state migration and how this uh, how 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 people vote with their feet the the salt the change in the salt cap will will simply make it so people actually have to feel the tax policies that are implemented at the state and the local level it's it's making it so that the, the person the the top 1% in uh, in in New York who currently pay over 50 percent of the income tax when their tax rate goes up they'll have a they'll have an incentive to say hey uh, uh, Governor Cuomo hey legislator my let legis- my my representative maybe you don't want to raise my taxes taxes again and it shines a light on the fact that highly progressive tax systems aren't are neither good economic policy. We've talked a lot about how it's detrimental to, to to the economy overall. But they're also not they're also bad budget policy. There's a sort of classic example from I think it was New Jersey. There was the richest taxpayer in the country moved to Florida where there's no income tax, and it left uh, a several hundred million dollar hole in New Jersey's budget overnight, and it, and it just shows that that. Incredibly progressive narrow tax bases on just a few of the richest people are create instability in state budgets that that have ramifications beyond uh, beyond just the sort of economic apa- impacts that we that we always focus on. And so the 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 change at the federal level of the salt deduction puts pressure on on states to re- to reform. And uh, I think it's uh, it's important to also remember that this this change was paired with all of the other reforms that were included in the federal tax reform, which broadened tax bases overall, which a lot of states adopt the larger tax tax base. So a lot of states actually saw an increase in revenue, despite the fact that the uh, changes were made to the SALT. And I know Jonathan uh, and, and Alec have done a lot of great work talking to states about how they can actually cut tax rates now at the state level um, because of the, this additional revenue that they have, and, it, and it sort of helps states in two ways. Both they can lower tax rates to diminish the, 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 the sort of impact of the SALT deduction change, and then it also makes their tax systems fairer and, and increases the sort of the economics of, of the situation as well. So there's a, there's a really great section. I, I encourage you to check it out uh, in the Rich States, Poor States this year where they sort of go through the opportunities for states that this new um, federal uh, cap on state and local tax deduction creates. And I think it, it sets up the conversation moving forward. The, the SALT cap was, was only capped. It wasn't fully eliminated. So there still is a subsidy that's in the tax code for high-tax states to, to a certain degree. And so I think we should continue to make the case that the subsidy should go away completely, that, that we should be lowering tax rates again for everyone and eliminating this narrow subsidy to, to just a few high-income folks in high-tax states.
1: So can I just add a couple mm-hmm. things on that? Yes. I think that's a really good summary. Um, a couple things One, I mean I agree with you we should there should be no, it should be zero you should not nobody should be able to deduct any of their state and local taxes. Second of all, we made a big mistake in the in the tax bill that I hope they rectify, which is corporations still are able to write off their state and local tax deductions, which is completely unfair. I mean why should a small business not be able to deduct their state and local taxes but a big corporation can so we should we should fix that. Um, a couple of other things I wanted to mention um, first of all, just in terms of we all believe in limited government, and if you believe in limited government, then having one um, branch of government subsidize the services of another branch of government is always a really, really bad idea. What we effectively have done now is basically said, look, if you in New York want an extra dollar of government services, sure, but you have to your taxpayers now have to pay the full dollar for that, not 60 cents. And so that will I mean the left understands that this will lead to a hopefully a limited a more limited um, government um, on the state and local level. Um, a third point to make about this that people haven't thought about is it's it's completely it's just bad policy to allow a deduction on your taxes because i mean think about this if you know when i lived in um you know in illinois i you know we had public garbage collection now why the why the government has to provide garbage collection is stupid i mean there's no reason the government has to collect the garbage you can, when i moved to virginia you just would look up Garbage collection in the phone book, and they, you know, back when they had the white pages, and you would, you would contract with the company to collect your garbage. Now, what's the difference between those two? Well, you have under, when you have a state and local tax deduction, you actually have an incentive, a financial incentive to actually have the government provide the service because you can write it off on your taxes. Whereas if I contract with a private company to do it, I don't get to write it off. So, one of the, hopefully, one of the aspects of, of, getting rid of the state and local tax, you'll have more privatization of government services, which is something we care a lot about here. The other thing I want you all to think about, because there's so many interesting facets of this. I think most of us in this room, I know everybody at this table wants a flat tax. We want to get rid of every deduction and get the tax rate down to 18 or 19 percent, right? And one of the reasons you want to do that is because the lower you get the rate, the the lesser importance there is to tax deductions. I mean, if you get the rate down to 18%, if you can't deduct things, it has a much smaller impact than if you have a 40 or 50. Now, think about this. Think if we lived in a world where you had a 70% tax rate like AOC is talking about. Well, what would the impact of that be? Now, all of a sudden, states would be raising their tax rates through the roof because 70% of that could be could be written off on their federal taxes, so that's that would be a really bad thing and then finally, just to, you know i find I do find it very comical the left is having a really hard time with this because they they desperately want to move back to the old regime where you could write off your your state and local taxes on your federal taxes but guess what here's the killer for them that the top one percent 60% of the, of the revenue loss comes from the richest 1%, the millionaires and billionaires. So it, when the left keeps talking about bringing this back, what they are talking about is the biggest tax cut for rich people in the history of America. Exactly.
3: And by the way, I mean, one of the things that I find so fascinating about this debate is – All these governors who told us for decades that taxes don't matter, matter, right, are now all on record saying if we do away with this subsidy to our high-tax regimes in our states, our taxpayers are going to be out of luck, right? So we've collected this uh, great collection of quotes now from all of these high-tax, high-spending politicians who are now on record calling for lower taxes. So as Steve alluded to, when this discussion then goes to Albany and goes to Trenton and goes to Springfield and Sacramento – we're going to be reminding in those, those quotes. Except the I problem is, important. you know,
1: the problem is, you know, we – these these liberal states are so liberal. They're just plowing – they go, we don't care. We're going to continue. I mean Connecticut and Illinois and New Jersey just had the biggest tax increases in the history of their states even though they can't write – I mean they're like, are you people idiots? I mean, you know, it's going to – we estimated in our Wall, Wall Street Journal piece last year that we wrote – the three of us, that, that this will cause an additional 3 million people a year to move out of the high-tax states if they don't change their policies. But rather than cutting their tax rates, which they should be doing, unfortunately, I don't know what's going wrong in these blue states. They keep raising them. I mean, Illinois wants to go from a, what is their flat tax, 4%? Just under 5 Yeah. yeah. To like 8 you know. I mean, really? And you, these people can't write it off? I mean, that that is craziness.
2: I'm glad you were just talking about Illinois and the need to raise taxes there because that gets to one of the other issues I wanted to cover that's kind of a lesser known issue is pensions. Um, And Jonathan with Alec, they have a separate report that will be coming out this week on unfunded pensions across the state and local governments. With the decline in pensions for most private sector workers, this isn't something that most people know about or even think they care about. And yet the state and local governments have promised almost $6 trillion in pensions that they haven't set aside the money to pay. So there is a huge gap sitting there. And that gap is part of the reason that places like Illinois are thinking about how, how are we going to come up with this revenue? We need to you know, change our flat tax here and go to a more progressive one because they simply can't keep paying their pension bills, and it's gotten to that point where they're having to do something. Um, Jonathan, can you talk about what these unfunded liabilities are doing to the states and whether or not it's impacting them yet?
3: Well, yeah, it's it's really, I think, the existential financial issue – for state and local governments for the next decade, two decades, three decades, as we look forward in terms of the financial future of states. If state and local governments do not address and fix the massive unfunded liabilities in their public sector plans um, there are not going to be tax increases high enough to pay for these bills uh, or otherwise they run into the laffer curve problem at the state level which is of course you cannot get too greedy with your tax rates as we've talked about especially with the lack of <laughs> federal subsidy and the salt deduction being limited uh, you know that puts more pressure on those high rates in California mm-hmm. in New York in New Jersey in Maryland and states that have just gone down that route and so it's even more important that the reform on pensions relate around not raising taxes more to pay for these extremely rich benefits that are underfunded but to look at what does the model of reform look like? I mentioned Utah earlier at the beginning of this panel as a state that we've held up as a state that's done pension reform well. Um, Oklahoma, my my home state of Michigan, uh, even Pennsylvania, uh, signed into law by a Democrat Governor Tom Wolfe in the last couple of years, have all undertaken substantial pension reform that has reduced unfunded liabilities and by the way, Rachel moved towards more of the 401k model in the private sector that has worked well that is funded. These states have gotten away with using uh, accounting that would put them in prison if they were CFOs or CEOs signing off on those financial statements. I mean, when I go around and talk to legislators, many of them, if they're new, don't know the dynamics of generally accepted accounting principles in the private sector versus – Uh, the GASB standards, the Government Accounting Standards Board standards that state and local governments use when it comes to pensions, which allows them to assume things like 7 or 8% assumed rates of return every year for the next 20 or 30 years. It assumes that their workforce grows, that people will work longer, but then they die after retirement. and They play all these kind of very strange actuarial games to hide the liabilities, but even even still, we at ALEC have spent a lot of time measuring the liabilities in a more accurate way, and every year we come out with the report Unaffordable and Unaccountable. And, in fact, our new newest edition, the 2019 edition of that report, will be released this Wednesday, detailing the unfunded liabilities across states when you strip away the bad accounting that state and local governments use. And the total is always right around $6 trillion nationally, which might be a rounding error here in Washington. But I guarantee you, at the state and local level, $6 trillion is enough to put states and local governments into bankruptcy. And of course, you know, I'm not making this up. We just need to look at Detroit. We need to look at Puerto Rico. We need to look at the examples: st- Stockton, California, San Bernardino, of the state and local governments that have gone through this process. I think, you know, not to be all doom and gloom here on pensions, although it is a very concerning issue, we do have a model that works. It's the 401 k defined contribution type model. It's worked in the state level. I think we just need to have more education in terms of what is doing to the liabilities in the states that have adopted positive reforms. So,
1: Jonathan, you mentioned my home state of Illinois. Illinois, I think, is one of the three or four worst in terms of pension benefits relative to the income of the state. And there was a big report that just came out that said that their liabilities are so large, you know, let's kind of put this in language people can understand, that every homeowner in the entire state of Illinois would have to face a 25% property tax increase for 25 years just to pay for the pensions. That is, not a penny of it would go for schools or roads or hospitals or emergency services or parks. Every penny of it would go for, uh, you know, pensions. Now, there was a really... One of the things that kind of circling this back to our discussion about migration is who wants to move to Illinois? Under those, you know, in other words, I have to pay 25 percent of my taxes just to pay for services that were already provided, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years from now, and pay somebody a pension who's now living in you know West Palm Beach, Florida. I mean, nobody wants to do that. And uh, of all you know the experts, the one I th- thought was very interesting um, last week, Warren Buffett gave a interview on CNBC, and he said, look. If you're looking – if you're a company looking at where you want to locate a factory or a headquarters or a warehouse and and you're looking at Illinois that has these massive pension benefits, uh, liabilities, or you could go to a state like Utah that doesn't have those, you know, of of course, it's going to have a – that's going to have a big impact in accentuating these, you know, these migration patterns away from the, you know, mostly the high-tax blue states to the – to the red states and it is interesting the states with the highest taxes are also the states with the highest um, unfunded liabilities so it's a, it's a yeah, i agree you it's like this ticking time bomb and and you know by the way in Illinois just to give you a sense of how bad it is so the Illinois Supreme Court has ruled that these these pension benefits cannot be taken they have a legal right to these these pension benefits that means if the state goes bankrupt the first people in line to get the state revenues will not be teachers, will not be schools, will not be maintaining public safety. It will be the paying money for retired, you know, pensioners. It's 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 preposterous. And yet, so that's the situation a lot of states find themselves in.
3: And of course, in Illinois, they've actually taken it to the extreme. Will you stop
1: picking on my state? <laughs> hey, you know,
3: it was Michigan for about a decade. Now it's Illinois, Steve. So, uh, But when it comes to um, when it comes to Illinois, uh, they have a situation where their Supreme Court has said even future COLAs are not allowed to be altered. Yeah. I mean, that's the kind of situation they can't change a thing when it comes to their pension system. And just to elaborate on Steve's point, 90% of every new dollar going into education statewide over the last five years in Illinois has gone, right? Illinois, yeah. has gone to that's pension pathetic. costs, not to teacher salaries, not to textbooks, not to all the other things people are said you need to pay more to help the kids. It's so, not happening. It's going to pension costs.
2: And that's the problem here. These are sunk costs that the states have, you know, been tied into from the result of previous politicians and there's nothing that you can do about what has already been accumulated because it would effectively be stealing from workers to take that back but as Jonathan talked about there are some states that are addressing this so at least going forward they are changing the situation and the sooner you do that the better because these liabilities are just growing over time. Um, we just have a little bit of time left here, but I wanted to ask um, Stephen Jonathan if you want to talk at all about kind of labor laws and right to work and what's happening there in the states.
1: Just it's a what is a single. I mean, we say the two biggest factors in terms of where businesses and jobs and income uh, and people locate uh, are the highest income tax rate and right to work laws. Those are the two most important, um, and right to work is. What is it now? What, what is it, 27? How many is it?
3: There's a couple of losses recently, yeah. right? So we're just under 30.
1: So, uh, you know, that, and, and so the, you know, the, the jobs are being created. You know, we've done this for 12 years. The jobs are created at twice the pace in the right-to-work states as the non-right-to-work states. When I was at the Wall Street Journal, we'd meet with CEOs all the time, you know, who run major, major Fortune 50 companies. they say we don't even – if a company is not right-to-work, we don't even – they're not even in the game. They're not even in the game, you know. I was in um, I was in Charleston, West uh, Charleston, um, South Carolina. You know, the big Boeing plant is one of the biggest plants in the world. It's right there. It used to be in Washington, Seattle, Washington, and they moved it there because South Carolina's right to work and Seattle isn't.
3: It's a binary choice. It really is. States have resumes. When economic development people come in and, and analyze that state policy resume, they look at taxes, they look at lots of things. But if you're not in the yes right to work pile when it comes to economic development uh, officials, many times, you're just out of the game when it comes to that potential investment. And, you know, as I mentioned, it, it took Indiana and Mitch Daniels and Mike Pence getting it started, that whole revolution of right to work really making its way through the Midwest. Uh, you know, Steve, uh, if we were here a decade ago, all the jokes should be on my home state in Michigan but you know what Michigan turned it around that is the optimistic story and right to work was one of the tools that they did it i never thought i'd be able to say in my lifetime we'd see my home state as a right to work state but they did it because they saw the economic benefits, and they had been scared by, uh, you know, lots of left-wing officials for, you know, 50 years that if you adopt right-to-work, you're going to lose your majorities, you're going to lose your seats when you run for so re-election. Are, which, Not one incumbent lost the re-election which as it relates states are of right in to right-to-work.
1: Which are attacking right-to-work now? A couple states were in some... Well, there's
3: a few. There's a couple of interesting stories there in that Missouri just repealed uh, right-to-work. It was a huge ballot initiative funded by uh, labor that uh, voted to overturn right-to-work right in Missouri. I think right to work will be back in Missouri. I think it's just gonna um, perhaps be this year, next year, before they have that discussion. What about Virginia? Uh, Virginia, uh, I think that's a very interesting question, right, because there's been bills filed in the legislature in Virginia to overturn uh, right-to-work. It certainly won't happen under this legislature, but I think it is a threat going forward. But let me say one other thing, and that is New Mexico, a state that um, had been working on local right-to-work. So you had uh, something like a dozen counties in New Mexico become local right-to-work ordinances, and by passing those in the last couple of years, their uh, new governor, uh, left-wing Democrat, as well as the legislature came together and basically said we're going to preempt local right to work and we're going to retroactively do it. And so any local government in New Mexico that has tried to adopt right to work at the local level through ordinance in the last couple of years is now disallowed. So some very bad movements in a couple of states on right to work. But I think overall, if we take a step back and say where were we 10 years ago on right to work uh, versus where we are today, uh, freedom to work is winning across the states.
2: Right. Well, we have a little bit of time left now. If you have a question, please go ahead and raise your hand and state your name and organization. We've got a couple microphones here. Let's go in the back there. Right here.
0: Yeah, my name is Andy Morton, and I'm, uh, I am have, have a small company, Morton Economics, formerly of the House Budget Committee staff with with, uh, with Chairman Black. Uh, I, th- I find this, this work, Steve, Jonathan, uh, Adam—very compelling. Uh, it's just really interesting stuff. And I find it very persuasive. But I want to—I want to give you a, a chance to comment on. So one one of my—I have a number of economist friends. One of them is a very liberal guy, and he in this area he he brings up. Let's see, work from last spring, I believe, by the uh, Economic Policy Institute, and they looked it looks specifically at Minnesota versus Wisconsin in that in that particular report. I'm from Iowa originally, Stephen. So, you know, I I've, I've been in Virginia for many years, but you know, I try to follow what's going on in the upper Midwest to some degree. So, so you look at this report and they they argue that the since 2010. Now, I, obviously they missed they missed last year. But basically, 2010 through 16, 17, the they argue the economic performance in Minnesota has been better than Wisconsin, and they. But but more more importantly, they attribute that difference to what they what they call the progressive policies of Minnesota versus versus the more market oriented, more conservative policies of uh, Wisconsin over that period. Could you comment? can cause, because obviously, I think I think you would see a different story there. I, uh, I suspect between those two states.
1: Well, I'll take a quick swing at this. I mean, one of the th- look, the, the the evidence is overwhelming, right? It is irrefutable. Everything that we said. I mean, it's you can't. So what they do is they say, well, what about this state or what about that? I mean, there's 50 states, and we're not saying that. Policy is the only thing that matters. There's a thousand reasons why one state might get richer than another. What we're saying is these are pretty powerful factors, and we have, you know, very strong evidence that, that, uh, that they have a big impact. And people, you know, people can see it with their eyes. I was just, I've, been in, I've been in Texas, Tennessee, and Florida in the last, you know, uh, month. All I see is New York, Connecticut, and Illinois license plates. I mean, you know, who are you going to believe, the Economic Policy Institute or your own two eyes, right, as Groucho Marx would say? And so, um, yeah, you can always cherry pick and say, well, gee, look at what's happening in this state. They're doing well, and then this one isn't. But if you look at it on a grand scale, it's, I think the evidence is pretty clear. But I don't know that – do you know the specifics about this Minnesota-Wisconsin?
3: There's a couple of things. And so my left-wing economist friends will point out Minnesota, will point out Oregon, a few states that are certainly anomalies when it comes mm-hmm. to the overall data. I mean, Oregon, I think, is somewhat easily explained away by the idea that, yes, they're high tax, but they're less high tax than California, and they have almost all of the in-migration and in-capital migration is coming from California. from California to Oregon, a state without a sales tax. Now, Minnesota is a little bit more Difficult. But what Minnesota looks really like, and I've talked to folks on the ground about this, is they've had such a history of, of a lot of the big C corps located in the Twin Cities there that that's been their base of jobs. And, of course, there's a huge frictional cost when you say, hey, all of a sudden you're going to pick up and move your headquarters and hundreds if not thousands of employees to another state. That's a, that's a big equation. You know, so those big companies have decided to stay in the Twin Cities, and in some cases that's kept an employment base there. Now, on the other hand, uh, depending on what time frame they're looking at, if they're looking at growth versus actual income levels, that's always a trick that's played. A lot of times they just look at per capita income versus growth in income and things like that. And, of course, the Scott Walker reforms, have uh, you know started in roughly two thousand and eleven uh, with Act ten and some of those other big reforms. right to work came later if you remember, so some of those things are still early on in their stage of development when it comes to seeing the benefits from them and let 's not forget let 's not make uh, let's let 's not let them paint. Uh, Wisconsin is a low-tax state. Wisconsin actually is a high-tax burden state that has high-income tax rates still on both personal and corporate income. That's something I told Governor Walker's policy people last time I was in Madison. They weren't exactly happy about that because it didn't fit the narrative. The narrative was, and it was very true, that Scott Walker did a lot of great things, except that he didn't get to cutting the personal and corporate income tax rates. So those barriers still do exist. It's not a great comparison when it comes to perfectly low-tax Wisconsin versus high-tax Minnesota. I am Joel Griffith with the Heritage Foundation. I'm proud to have worked with both Jonathan and Stephen on this in the
0: past years. So uh, we've seen a lot of uh, items in the news um, regarding
3: tax incentives for businesses, whether it's Foxconn in Wisconsin or Amazon in New York or Caterpillar in Illinois. Can you talk about some of the various approaches uh, by the states in dealing with tax incentives for companies and some of the positives or negatives of the different approaches?
4: I'll start sort of high level and, and let these guys talk about specifics of the states, but uh, actually, thank you for setting this up. Is uh, Joel and I are working on this issue at the federal level, and we now have over 40 years' worth of data uh, that has been looked at both by government studies and academic studies. And the overwhelming evidence from every single one of these reports is that, uh, that targeted economic development subsidies simply don't work that they tend to move investment from inside, outside of the zone to inside the zone, which has costs, so everyone is made worse off. And you can point out that, yes, this business that got uh, X million dollars worth of subsidies uh, did, it did do better, but what that doesn't look at is all of the businesses they compete with that were put out of business and the jobs that were lost outside of the one thing that you're shining the light on. And so the, the, the evidence is across the board, across states, across countries, uh, at the federal, uh, state, and local level, all of it points to targeted development subsidies simply not working. And so there's, there's examples at the federal level, but there's plenty of examples at the state level, whether it be Amazon or I'm sure all across the states.
3: Well, one thing on that, and that's such an important topic, and, and Joel, thank you for all your good work on putting this uh, publication together over the years. But one of the, uh, and of course at ALEC, we've been very, very um, adamant to make sure that government is not in the business of picking winners and losers. That needs to be happening in the free marketplace, and so tipping the government scales towards one industry or one company over another is bad public policy. Not just in theory, though. I mean, let's look at the practice. As Adam pointed out, Amazon. I think that is prima facie evidence when it comes to why these things matter when it comes to overall economic competitiveness instead, and that how much did uh, New York give away basically per job versus what Virginia offered to give per job? It was a factor of of several times more because it was making up for New York's high taxes. That was one of the big findings that we always look at when we look at this issue is states that have high business tax burdens overall end up wanting to give away more this way because that's the only way they can compete. In a way, it says competition is necessary, but on the other hand, getting to Adam's distinction between positive economic competition versus crony competition, I think the results are very clear in which model works best.
4: Here. Hi, I'm Peter Ferrara and I teach at King's College. So I just wanted to point out that uh, these uh, population shifts you're talking about are also redistributing political power through the electoral college. And so, if you compare how that's changed over the past 50 years, you'll see the decline of the rise of states like Florida. Uh, they're taking the place of what Ohio used to mean 50 years ago uh, politically. And so that's a very powerful uh, Mm -hmm. political redistribution that's going on as well.
3: I think in the report we outline how New York is down something like 14 or 15 U.S. House districts on net in the last 50 years. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, it's an incredible outflow. It's not just a trickle of one seat here or one seat there. We're talking about major political influence being lost.
0: You guys have um, done very good work in the past um, measuring death taxes. And, of course, we're now at a point where um, 17 states still have death taxes, 34 don't. And um, can you make uh, any comments on what you've seen particularly in, in this book that you've just put out and the effect of the death taxes on those states that do and those states that don't?
1: It's highly negative. It's highly negative. In fact, states probably don't. We we estimate that states probably lose revenue because of their death taxes. Because look, I mean, anybody you build a business in Illinois and you know you you grow it, you know, and you maybe it's a multi-million dollar business. I mean you'd be an idiot to die in Illinois. I mean you, you move to some I mean it's just you know why would you do that? Why would you give up, you know, 20% of your income, you know, to to the state when you can move to Florida or Tennessee or Texas. By the way, you think even California does not have a death tax, isn't that true? And I know you had a little something to do. So it's, it's negative for the states. They don't raise revenue because they lose so many jobs and so much other economic activity as a result. And, you know, if you take a, a millionaire or a billionaire and they move out of a state, even if they're retired in their 70s, think of all that purchasing power that moves to, you know, these other states. Pardon? You got it.
3: That's the message to legislators. If even California realizes the economic benefit of having no death tax – uh, we'll it's time, to, it's time to take a look at it,
1: right? But when you look at the states that I don't that have think we improved, should tell people that... We shouldn't tell Gavin Newsom <laughs> that they don't have a death tax, so they'll probably instate it. That's probably a good point. <laughs> when you look at states that have improved the
3: most, though, to your question, Dick, is states like Indiana and North Carolina that I talked about earlier as being two of the biggest winners. Both of those states in our horizon of this publication have repealed their death taxes. you know. You've worked on it. Congressman Jim Banks was a key sponsor of it when he was in the Indiana State Senate. And, of course, uh, Speaker now. Senator Tom Tillis was involved with it in North Carolina. But it's not just the red states that realize this. It's actually just a couple of years ago we saw uh, Joe Biden's Delaware repeal their death tax because of the out-migration of wealthy individuals to Florida, uh, leaving the Delaware beaches, going to the Florida beaches. And so this is a bipartisan economic development tool. And to Steve's point, uh, it it does not cost it really a whole lot at all at the dynamic level. So it's really an economic no-brainer to look at this for a state.
4: I'll, I'll just – I'll note that it, this, you see the same thing internationally uh, at, the, at sort of across countries, that a lot of your high-tax Scandinavian countries also don't have a death tax. Uh, that, that it, it Sweden may, does not, right. I, Exactly. Yeah. And so it, it, the evidence is clear that they don't raise a lot of revenue. They have negative impacts on jobs, on small businesses, and they're just administrative nightmares to comply with. And, and so we're seeing states move away from them. We saw the U.S. move – away from it in the TCGA by raising the exemption, hopefully we can do away with it completely at the federal level.
2: Well, and as a death tax being a wealth tax, I think this is a big cautionary tale for the federal government now having Senator Warren propose to play for the socialist agenda and the Green New Deal through a wealth tax um, will probably not play out well. So I think we have time for one more question down here in the front. Thank you very much for this uh book very helpful um uh, my name is ml uh, I'm, I'm from the epoch times um i understand this is also a good guide for investors foreign investors right uh, i just was i'm wondering if this is if there's any high correlation between fdi uh, bet- between rich states and higher fdi I, would you be able to comment on that
3: I think in, in one of the editions we actually do address that question directly. I'd have to go back and actually see. But absolutely, I mean, you look at uh, what we're seeing, let's say, on the repatriation effect of where our, our company is bringing back dollars because of the Federal Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. I was just in New Hampshire recently a uh, meeting with Governor Sununu's people. New Hampshire, as you may know, live free or die state, no income tax. No sales tax, a state that very much values freedom, even though they don't have the the effect that we talked about of states with the linkage of the federal tax code seeing these big surpluses for that reason because they don't have a personal income tax code, they're seeing a massive budget surplus being a competitive state in an otherwise not competitive region because the repatriation effect of dollars coming back and companies bringing those dollars back to the United States. Of course, we're seeing it broadly. That's, I think, one of the the greatest features of federal tax reform on the corporate side, but we're seeing it go to states like New Hampshire. That's an anecdotal example, but um, we'll make sure that we get you some of the more comprehensive data that we put together in previous editions.
1: So before we wrap this up, I just, could I make one last Mm -hmm. quick point? Um, The kind of next big thing that we have to look out for that I think is the big danger at the state level, and we've mentioned a lot of things, taxes, right to work and pensions and so on. The next big one that is, is coming from the left is these um, renewable energy requirements, which are hidden taxes on the consumers in these um, in these states. I did a report for Heritage a few months ago on this, just looking at the states. It's It's Again, this this pr- picture is pretty clear cut. That the states that have high renewable energy requirements, 50% or more, where they require half of your you know um, electric power to come from wind and solar, usually they exclude natural gas and, uh, and nuclear. Um, they have their utility bills for the average family are, are almost double what they are in the states that don't. And what makes this insidious is that. I think the left has kind of figured out, too, if we raise gas taxes and all these other kind of taxes, people are going to feel that directly, and that's probably not a very smart direction for them to go. So what you do is you just force it on people through the utilities, and then people have to pay higher bills, so so it's a very indirect tax. And do we actually take – we should start taking that into account in the report, these renewal voucher requirements, because who wants to move to a state? I mean, one of the reasons – I was in Pennsylvania Ohio in the last couple of weeks, you know, going throughout the state. Pennsylvania and Ohio today are booming, absolutely booming. And Ohio, I don't think they've had such good times in forty years. And one of the reasons for that is because they have the shale oil, uh, you know, and gas development. And it's it's these are energy states right now. It would do significant damage to these states if they, you know, raise these renewable standards. So, uh, have we started, we need to put this in the formula because I think it is really the next big thing that's coming from the states, and it's a it's a hidden tax on the businesses and the um, and the uh, families that live in those states. So.
2: Be a great addition to one of the upcoming reports. I'd like to thank everybody for coming out today. Hopefully, we'll be here again next year.
1: Mm-hmm. Thank you. Right, Jonathan. Good job. Good. Are we doing lunch now? Mm-hmm. Yeah.